When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Podcast Network. It's Wednesday, December 8, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined shortly by Darius Dale of 42 Macro. Uh, lots going on today, as always. Uh, looks like some positive news out of a Pfizer study uh, where the new uh, Pfizer dose, the booster shot, of uh, for for COVID seems to neutralize the Omicron variant in laboratory testing, uh, and apparently some immunity conveyed uh, in some larger studies that are starting to come out with regard uh, to human populations. Also, the JOLTS report out today, it appears that the rate of the great resignation may be slowing. Specifically, the quits rate has declined. Let's bring in Darius Tell to talk about all of it. Darius, welcome back to Real Vision Daily Briefing. What's up, Ash? How you doing, man? Where you at? So I currently am in Las Vegas, Nevada for the takeover. This is Real Vision's conference oh. uh, co- co- uh, with our partner, MGM. Uh, so we are doing this live from Las Vegas in a hotel room. In fact, I can look out this window here uh, and see the entire Las Vegas downtown skyline. So it's great to be here. Uh, and by the way, for people who are interested in uh, the takeover, this is uh, obviously an event that where we're talking about crypto, uh, digital assets, uh, and the importance that this group is playing today and going forward. Uh, I believe uh, you can still go and purchase streaming tickets to stream the event live right now uh, from wherever you are at. Awesome, man. Enjoy that. Enjoy that. (laughs) So Darius, let's talk, man. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about your view of what's happening big picture. I mentioned the jobs report, the jolts report uh, from today, and the jobs report, uh, employment situation report from last week. Tell us what's your overall take on the market and why today's data, the jolts report specifically, uh, changes or doesn't change your view. Yeah, no, I, I, with respect to the Jolt data, I saw unpack that in reverse. Um, the Jolt data did tick down. We saw the quits rate uh, go decline by 20 basis points month over month uh, to 3.1%. That's the lowest number we've seen since June. Um, Jerry, it's coming for, off. Yeah, but, for people who don't know what the quits rate is, give us a sense of it and why it's important in determining sentiment in the labor markets. Yeah, so exactly. So the quits rate is the is the number of people who are leaving their job, obviously, as a function of the total amount of people. Uh, who are employed as a, as a as a ratio of the total amount of people. So the but right. the, that's typically the higher that number goes, it's indicative of a lot of confidence among workers in the labor market that a the labor market is is hot, it's tight, and that they can obviously get another job. But you, typically, you you change jobs, you quit your job to to for higher wages, and so uh, the quit rate tends to be very positively correlated uh, with the um, with the employment cost index, with wage growth, and things of that nature. Um, in a so, intuitive way, too, right? So most people don't quit their jobs unless they're feeling very confident about their ability to get a better job, either at a higher rate uh, or a more convenient job or a job that you like better that you see has more upward mobility, for example. Absolutely. Uh, so that that's exactly the point. And so what we've seen this year is the quit rate really accelerate to an all-time high. It peaked out at 3.3% in August, uh, sort of came in at 3.3% again in September. Um, and then now it's now starting to fade a little bit in October. But again, we're still at very elevated levels. Um, and as a function of that, we've obviously seen something like the employment cost index, which is probably the best uh, measure of wage growth. It's not as, it's not as timely as the jobs report, uh, but it, it could, because it's a quarterly statistic. But that that's still up at an all-time high. 
uh, at three point seven. Or sorry, not an all time high. Three point seven percent is the highest number we've seen since the third quarter of two thousand four. Hey, Darius, can you talk a little bit more broadly about what this great resignation uh, phenomenon is that we're seeing right now, and and why it's significant? Yeah, so that's a great question. There's two things, in my opinion, that are happening in the labor market that I think are both pointing to a, an accelerated taper. And obviously, the Fed actually have an acquiesce to what the markets are already pricing in, which is a more accelerated policy rate uh, sort of tightening uh, schedule. Um, and so one, on one dynamic, you have an acceleration of the return to work. And we're seeing this in terms of the slope of the line with something like unemployed workers uh, that take down another 542,000 to 6.8 million. That's that, you know, so that, that number, the slope of that really started to accelerate to the downside um, on the, upon the expiration of the uh, enhanced unemployment insurance. We're also seeing the slope of the labor force accelerate to the upside. So that right. picked up a full million in in, uh, in in the most recent jobs report in November to 155 million. So those two slopes are now converging at an accelerating rate, and it's telling it's sending a signal to the Fed that the labor market is actually healing uh, much faster. But then when you look at some of the other the dynamics that are happening underneath the surface, or not even underneath the surface, kind of just really right at the surface, you look at something like the employment to population ratio that actually accelerated pretty markedly. Um, in November, that accelerated 40 basis points to 59.2. Um, but the, you know, and then you look at something like the prime labor force working age participation rate um, that's accelerated to uh, 10 basis points, 81.8. Female labor force participation rate that accelerated another 20 basis points to 56.2 in November. So you have a lot of positivity uh, going on in the jobs report. And then I made this comment last week, which is, hey, look, man, this jobs report is actually very, very hawkish. Because what it's it's kind of showing two dynamics. One, it's healing faster than it had been in recent months. But at the same time, we still have this depressed level of labor supply that is contributing to a supply-demand imbalance between businesses and workers. We obviously saw the Jotes, the headline Jotes data tick up back towards an all-time high um, in, in the most recent month. And this supply-demand imbalance is very clearly perpetuating uh, wage growth if you look at it through you know, something like uh, median or, or median workers, the Atlanta Fed wage tracker, and obviously the employment cost index data that I just cited. Yeah, your take on this is so nuanced, Terrace, and I, I want to unpack uh, some of these ideas for people who perhaps uh, haven't had an economics class since college. Let's talk through uh, what this means. Labor force participation rate, employment to population ratio. These are important statistics with gauging the size of a labor force. Now, this is kind of a, a slightly complex thing because it's in two layers. You have people who are in the labor if you're not in the labor force, you don't qualify as either employed or unemployed. You have to be in the labor force uh, to be counted in either category. Give us a little bit of a sense of what that those broader statistics measure and why it's important for investors to understand, to understand where the Fed may or may not be going. Yeah, absolutely. So the number one reason we track the size of the labor force and the changes therein is to understand whether or not the changes in the unemployment rate, the headline, or the sub-unemployment rate indices are actually, you know, as positive or as negative as they sort of appear on, on uh, prima facie. And so, you know, you look at this jobs report, we saw a massive improvement in the labor force, and we also saw a, saw a massive declines in the unemployment rate. Um, and there's some unemployment rates in particular. So obviously, the U3 headline unemployment rate taken down to low fours is a very hawkish, very positive dynamic with respect to the labor market. When you start to unpack the surface, it's actually healing faster in the places where the Fed has its most attention with respect to its maximum and inclusive mandate. So you look at things like the, uh, the Hispanic and African-American unemployment rates, those tick down 70 basis points and 120 basis points, respectively, in November. These are massive declines. I mean, you're talking like big you know, jump conditions lower uh, in those statistics. Right. You also saw a pretty meaningful jump condition lower 
uh, in the high school dropout unemployment rate that declined 170 basis points in one month to yeah. 5.7%. I mean, these are, you know, this is the kind of, if the Fed was waiting to say, hey, let me make sure that we don't tighten too soon so they can make sure some of these disaffected groups, um, you know, these overly sort of uh, impacted groups with respect to the COVID pandemic, uh, have time to get back to the labor market, have time to find jobs, and ultimately, um, you know, kind of uh, you know set themselves up from a livelihood perspective. We're now actually starting to see that, and more importantly, you're seeing that in a very accelerated way. And so, I think that you play the ball forward. You know, what does this mean as it relates to the Fed's reaction function? They're not going to be. They can no longer lean on that sort of secondary mandate, this maximum and inclusive mandate, and say, hey, we could bury our head in the sand with respect to elevated rates of inflation. They're going to have to giddy up the taper. Uh, we suspect that they will uh, next Wednesday, and more importantly, uh, they have to set themselves up to to to, to hike interest rates uh, as soon as the first half of next year. We think June will be left off. Yeah, and so this is really the key point. You frame the narrative big picture here so uh, so well, uh, which is what we're talking about here. Ultimately, is what the Fed will or will not do in terms of the withdrawing of the extraordinary accommodative monetary policy that we've had in place, specifically the asset purchases. Uh, 120 billion uh, per month in uh, in Treasury debt as well as uh, agency debt. Obviously, that for November and December has been uh, drawn down by 15 billion dollars per month. Uh, but give us a sense of the big picture of where we are right now with the Fed. Uh, obviously, we've got a, a Fed balance sheet of around 8.6 trillion dollars that still needs to be unwound at some point. Uh, and we have interest rates, the federal funds rates, still in the zero to 25 uh, basis point range, meaning at or near the zero bound. Yeah, so big picture is they got to come out and say something different next Wednesday. Uh, so you go back to their September uh, FOMC meeting where they released the summary of economic projections. You know, they're around 2.2 or 2. Sorry, they're 2.4% core PC for next year, 2.3 for the year after, talking about maybe one rate hike in 2022. I mean, the market is really calling their bluff on that. Um, the market is, you know, currently right now, the euro dollar uh, calendar spreads are pricing in 80 basis points of tightening. So, you know, effectively three policy rate hikes in 2022. And if they get started in June, it's very likely that they have they, they will have the time to get the, to enact three policy rate hikes. I don't suspect they will in terms of our forecast for core PCE, where, where, where it will likely be by the end of next year uh, for them to actually pursue the third rate hike. But certainly... Uh, what this, these data, these hawkish employment data are suggesting to the Fed that, hey, look, you wanted to take your time removing the punch bowl. You're now going to have to accelerate the removal of the punch bowl. And that may have uh, some, some, that clearly has dire implications for asset markets, you know, in terms of, you know, the leadership of cyclical sectors and style factors, uh, obviously has, you know, implications for the bond market as well, but not the implications that you might think. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Right. Uh, so once again, back to uh, PCE. Uh, let's zoom the camera out a little bit there and talk about the nature of the dual mandate, what the Fed is trying to get under control. Uh, obviously, maximum employment and stable prices being two things that can move against each other, in fact, traditionally are inversely correlated. Uh, give us a little bit of a sense on where that balance of risk is right now. 
Yeah, well, it's, <laughs> well, they like it to be a little bit more balanced, but unfortunately, the data is not are not you know you know they're not <laughs> they're not acquiescing to the to the Fed's uh. So, uh, so the imbalance, the imbalance of risk. It's the imbalance. Yeah, exactly. It's Absolutely. very much an imbalance of risk. I mean, so we have four hand on core PCE. That's their preferred inflation metric. Uh, we have six handle on headline CPI. Could potentially have a seven handle as soon as Friday. Uh, we're going to get the November CPI data point on Friday. Um, the reality is these numbers are much more elevated relative to a labor market that is now, you know, very visibly a lot stronger than it had been as recently as a couple of months ago. You know, you go back to September, October, September, August, you know, July. You know, the labor market was still healing, but it certainly didn't demonstrate this kind of broad-based and inclusive strength that is now demonstrated um, as recently as November. So um, that mandate, uh, they, you know, they just have to acknowledge that they, you know, they've been slow foot. They're sort of behind the curve, and quite frankly, they want it to be behind the curve, right? This is the the right. whole point of changing the, the their inflation mandate or their inflation target to something that's average and, and and allows them to sort of hit their targets with respect to maximum inclusive employment. So they're getting what they want. They just probably got a little bit more of it on the inflation side. And as a function of that, they're going to have to do something a little bit different with respect to policy. Yeah, and the maximum conclusive employment is an important point to make. That word inclusive, there have been points in the labor market that have not seen the strengthening historically. Uh, in other recessions, I'm thinking about the Great Recession, for example, uh, here, where you saw the uh, the global financial crisis, where we saw uh, that certain communities were impacted and impaired uh, in labor markets for far longer than the general uh, rate of, uh, for example, employment. Very true, and the Fed learned from that, and 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 you know, quite frankly, I think they've done, a, for the most part, have done a, a good enough job. Don't forget, a lot of the inflation that we're seeing, or at least up until the most recent months, had been in pandemic-impacted areas. You know, we had a record fiscal stimulus, multiple record fiscal stimuluses, most recently as 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 uh, March of this year, and then we obviously had a record reopening impulse. Obviously, you got the 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 uh, the Pfizer booster news uh, today, but that reopening impulse and that fiscal stimulus for one time in nature, but they were very large in terms of perpetuating uh, some supply demand imbalances across global supply chains and things of that nature. One thing that's different now in, in terms of the, the most recent inflation data we're getting, particularly in the headline in the CPI uh, basket, median CPI, we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, accelerated to 7.1% on a seasonally adjusted annualized basis. That's the highest reading we've seen ever. So the, the inflation pressure in the economy that's coming from you know the 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 kind of the, the great migration, the the great you know kind of retirement, the great you know re reimagining of of of, of workers uh, sort of kind of workers um, connection to the labor force. Right. That all those dynamics are really kind of creating a supply demand imbalance with respect to um, you know labor, the supply of labor and the and the demand for it. So it's all starting to perpetuate higher prices in other areas of the economy, and that's something the Fed may have to accelerate um, its tightening plans or its exit strategy uh, to accommodate. Hey, Darius, while we're explaining, expanding, unpacking, let's talk a little bit about the metrics that you use to gauge inflation. CPI, obviously, consumer price index, PCE, personal consumption expenditures, the preferred measure at the Fed for measuring inflation, uh, and obviously, a great deal more variability underneath the surface uh, when you begin to unpack the next level of data. Give us a sense of what you look at, why you look at it, and what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a bunch of ways to slice and dice inflation. Uh, obviously, there's market-based measures as well. But sticking to the the kind of the economic, the reporting side of things, you got headline CPI that's obviously got a six handle on it. Could potentially have a seven handle on it. One thing I've been doing with most economic statistics, um, it's kind of um, you know, you, it, it's more or less folly to look at them on a year-over-year rate of change perspective um, in this particular time period because we had so much uh, variability with respect to the reaction to the pandemic 
in 2020 and the second half of 2020. And so it's kind of difficult to, to glean much from a year-over-year statistic. But when you look at it on a SAR basis, a seasonally adjusted annualized basis, so the month-by-month change uh, times right. 12, you know, that stuff is it's actually quite hot. I mean, headline CPI is at 11.9% on a SAR basis. That's the highest number we've seen in that metric since June of 2008. Core CPI is at 7.4%. That's the highest level we've seen since June. These are all October statistics. We're going to get the November data on Friday. Um, you know, something like shelter CPI is up back up at 5.6%. That's the highest we've seen since June. And then when you kind of look towards the more kind of stable measures of employment, I guess, if you will, the, more, the measures that exclude, you know, kind of volatile price changes and in, 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 in food and, and inflation, the, the Fed's preferred inflation metric, that's at it 5.2%. So the SAR is actually running hotter than the year-over-year -year statistics. And if it stays that way, obviously, the year-over-year -year statistics will continue to grind higher. Um, so the SAR and core PCE was at 5.2%. Uh, in the month of October. So these are all, you know, issues of the Fed, you know, and, and this is kind of the problem with respect to asset markets, because having waited for so long to kind of commence tightening or commence the removal of the punt bowl and eventually set yourself up, the Fed set itself up for policy rate tightening, they're kind of doing it at a plane of the, the cycle where it's less favorable. Um, you know, so if, if they had done this whole process, you know, three, four, five, six months ago, you know, asset markets probably wouldn't have had a as much of a issue. Asset markets are unlikely to have as much of an issue with it. But the problem with accelerating the taper, you know, particularly throughout the first half of 2021, and ultimately tightening monetary policy in the first half of 2021, and potentially throughout 2020, or sorry, 2022. My apologies, I was 2022 when I said all those things. It potentially accelerating, you know, the, the the taper and tightening monetary policy. We're gonna have growth and inflation decelerating simultaneously throughout that entire process. And so there will be tightening into an economic slowdown. There'll be tightened into an into a inflation slowdown. Now we're coming from very elevated rates of growth, very elevated rates of inflation. So it may be less onerous for markets to, to, to chew that up. But there's not a lot of history to suggest that you know tightening policy into, into what we call bottom-up macro regime deflation um, is something that should be uh, kind of dismissed by investors, particularly with respect to risk assets. Yeah, let me underline a point that you just made there uh, while we're explaining and unpacking. S-A-A-R, uh, I know it's a lot of acronyms, but what we're trying to do uh, is look at inflation on an annualized rate basis. So when you see these numbers, uh, when they're adjusted, S-A-A-R, seasonally adjusted annualized rate, uh, that means it's the rate at which inflation uh, is running for the full year based on that monthly reading. The other option that you have for this is to look at things year over year, uh, so you don't need to adjust it. You can look at, for example, uh, December of 2021 compared to December of 2020. Unfortunately, with that, you can get some base effects. There really are no perfect metrics uh, to do this, but we can adjust for it and just try and get a sense of globally, big picture, what's the rate of inflation uh, running every year? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, just, <laughs> you can, you can, I'll never forget, economics is a soft science. We try to use as much math and data as possible to help investors front run these kind of big pivots in financial markets. But the reality is, you know, you can uh, investor A can look at the same exact job report as investor B or policymaker A and policymaker B and wind up on two two very different conclusions. So never forget that. It ain't physics or chemistry. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, but you know, over the years we've developed these uh, statistical uh, tools to get a sense of what some of these things are, so you can adjust for it, so you can correct for it. It's especially difficult right now, I think, uh, in the wake of. Uh, the COVID crisis, when you see this just extreme V-shaped recovery, or maybe the inverse radical-shaped uh, recovery, where you drop very steeply, you recover, but then you don't actually get back uh, to par. So these numbers can be, uh, first of all, very the magnitude changes that we're seeing. You mentioned it in the labor force participation rate changes. These are huge, huge swings relative to traditional uh, pre-COVID, for example. Uh, 
changes. So it's an it's an important point to point out. Uh, and and as we look at this and we examine it, you know, people uh, like you, Darius, who've been doing this for a really long time, have developed not just the statistical tools, but also the intuition to know which one to use and why. Uh, which is why I think it's so important to have conversations like this on Real Vision, where you can explain and unpack a little bit of your thinking. Yeah, no, definitely. There's uh, 30 years or not 30, 13 years of of gathering knowledge, uh, sort of you know, into this into this discussion. So I appreciate you calling that out. Darius, if you've been doing this for 30 years, I'd be really impressed, even more impressed than I am today. <laughs> Lord knows, what was I doing 30 years? Not much 30 years ago. Not, not much. <laughs> hey, Darius, let me ask you a question. Uh, and I'm not going to ask you the narrow question about what this uh, this means uh, for coming out of Pfizer. Obviously, as I was saying at the top of the show, uh, reports of the vaccine uh, offers protection against Omicron, especially when you get the booster shot. This is based on lab tests and I think some limited uh, some limited uh, survey data uh, in the field. You know, obviously, this is a very sort of fluid, dynamic time. In other words, the news cycle moves very quickly. Uh, yeah. You get these, you get these sort of like these little snippets of news, and then you have to process them and think about what does that mean. How do you, how do you process all of this as it comes into you? Do you just try and, do you try and to a certain extent like kind of disregard it and stay eye on the ball in terms of data, or do you take into account some of the news flow that's coming at you? Yeah, no, it's it's not the news flow that matters to me. It's the data that predicts the news flow, and more importantly, data that might change the, the news flow. Um, you know, so when you look at something like the jobs report, when when we got that jobs report. On Friday, you know, obviously the kind of initial hit knee jerk reaction was like, "Oh, it missed. It's a huge miss. It's it's dovish." But then you take a second and go into the and and, and do the advanced analytics on on okay, what's actually happening underneath the surface. You know, the, to me, I'm like, okay, that sets us up to understand that. Hey, look, you know, investors are you know initially reacting to this as dovish, but the reality yeah. is, it's actually quite hawkish in our opinion. And so that that's the kind of analysis that we're doing. It's not what the news or the headlines are. Right. It's what is the data and how are the headlines. What are the how are the headlines evolve in the next you know kind of sequence of weeks, sequence of months, sequence of quarters? That's exactly what we help investors do with forty two week forty two macro. You know, it's funny. Uh, I'm here in a hotel room in Las Vegas. I don't have all my notes. I don't have all my nerdy stuff that I have in my apartment. But when I read that report on Friday, you know, my first take was, and it's funny, you, you should mention it. So it seems dovish for the initial headlines, even breaking yeah. uh, on financial news. I, I read through this report, and my big takeaway, the one thing that I remember here in my hotel room in Las Vegas, historical correlations are breaking down. This report has internal dynamics that look very different than other reports that we've seen from the employment situation. There's just a lot of stuff that typically is correlated, typically moves together, or inversely that isn't moving in that direction now because we're seeing these changes based from on the volatility, massive changes in base effects, uh, and potentially some hysteresis as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and well, don't forget the seasonal adjustment as well. That's a big factor yeah. as well in terms of the uh, the establishment survey. So it's just hard. I mean, it's hard to be... It's, we, knew this, we knew this at the outset of the pandemic. Uh, it's, it's hard to be an economist right now. Thank God I'm not an economist. I happen to you know, have a good you know, handle on economics, but um, you know, I, I consider myself more of a, an investor, a risk manager, more than anything. And we're, what we're using is is our informed views on changes in the economy and our projections in terms of the changes in the economy to relate that back to what we should be doing from a portfolio construction perspective. So that's all this really is. You know, we can sit here and walk out on jobs report A or B, you know, for the next six hours. But the reality is, we're not helping ourselves or investors make money with it. It's kind of useless information. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, hold that thought. We're going to get back to portfolio construction in just a second, because I want to get your take on what this means uh, and how you're processing portfolio construction. But first, uh, to get back to the points that we were making earlier about the Fed, I wanted to jump in here and show a quick clip. This is uh, Maggie Lake and Alfonso Pecatiello uh, from December 8th, uh, excuse me, December 6th, uh, talking about the Fed uh, and his take on whether or not it will move soon. Let's take a look at the clip. 
I would argue the Federal Reserve um, will probably be able to taper according to plan. Um, there are, of course, COVID uncertainties going forward. There is a weak credit impulse going forward. On the other end, there is a labor market which is healing. Labor market is healing. Um, cyclically speaking, we have people going back into the labor market. We have U6 unemployment rate, which is a broader definition of unemployment rate, which includes not only U3, classical definition, but also marginally attached people to the labor force or people that work part-time for economic reasons, for example. All these people uh, basically are trying to get back into the labor force and are even uh, being successful in doing that. So as that happens, cyclically, you will, you will have improvements in the labor market and that will effectively lend a hand to the consumer side um, of the equation. So. So there you have it, Alfonso Pecatiello. Sounds to be in agreement with you, Darius. The Fed will probably be tapering according to plan. Yeah, no, I I, I would take it a step further. Because I find that by the way, great investor does excellent work. Um, I would take it a step further. I don't think they're going to taper according to the original plan, the plan they laid out on November third. That was ahead of. You remember they made that that that, that statement. Hey, we're going to just watch this thing go fifteen billion a month. But since then, we've gotten um, um, the, the headline CPI data point, uh, you know, kind of a week right after that, six handles shocked the market. And then we got the uh, core PC data point, four handle. Um, then this, they shocked the market to the same degree. But you know, we, we've gotten two very important data points since then. And oh, by the way, the third data point, the cherry on top, was the November jobs report and all the very hawkish internals uh, therein. And so to me, if you're talking about, if you're, if you're being Bayesian about this, and I assume this data-driven Fed, they keep talking about how data-driven they are. If they're being Bayesian about it, the world in, on December 8th is very different than the world on November 3rd in terms of the incremental information we gather to, uh, to, to adjust our Bayesian prior to, and a, to a different posterior state. The posterior state says, hey, look, you need to move faster. And we do think they're going to move faster. And at some point in the kind of the first half of next year, I happen to think it'll be late Q1, early Q2, we're going to get to the point where there's being outright liquidity reductions in markets when you sort of layer on the, uh, the Treasury general account and all those dynamics. Uh, therein. So we're, we're headed for potentially rocky 2022, um, potentially, you know, very rocky first half of 2022. And ultimately, um, you know, you know, it's nothing to necessarily do with that today. But certainly, uh, from a medium term perspective, investors are probably reasonably off, 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 off sides in terms of a lot of the holdings and allocations that they have, you know, just coming off a two year kind of massive bull run. Actually, really three years, if you, you know, kind of go back to the start of 2019. Darius, when you're ready to write it, being Bayesian is a great title for your memoir. Oh, man, that's a great one. I might actually steal that one from you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Welcome back to Real Vision's Daily Briefing. Let's get right back to the top analysis of today's markets. Hey, Darius, listen, talking about the cherry on top, uh, let's talk about portfolio allocation. We obviously gave the framework for what you're seeing right now, how you're thinking about markets. Uh, take it down to us to the next level. How do you think about portfolio allocation, portfolio construction uh, in this particular environment? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So this is something we specialize in. We help investors, institutional investors, all the way down to retail investors at 42 Macro with this, this very specific topic. 
And, you know, how we think about portfolio construction first starts with, you know, orienting the themes, the bets in the portfolio, you know, kind of across, you know, the four different group regimes that we have, Goldilocks, reflation, inflation, and deflation. We want to orient the size of the bets in the portfolio that correspond to each of those four regimes that correspond to one of those four regimes in accordance with the probabilities of realizing those regimes in the economy over the medium term. And so right now we're, you know, kind of fairly tilted towards inflation with the secondary bias towards deflation and a very minimum sort of allocation towards Goldilocks and reflation. Those are the pro-growth um, 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 exposures. Those are the pro-growth themes. Those are the themes where you belong, small caps, you belong, um, you know, kind of every, you know, uh, sort of, you know, poop coin, <laughs> not to borrow, you know, <laughs> curse on the, you know, that's where you belong to kind of higher beta, higher risky, low, you know, kind of higher leverage type, type, type exposures. You know, when you're in, when you talk about having a more uh, overall weighting more towards inflation or deflation, you're talking about lower beta exposure. Not saying you had to go out and raise a bunch of cash and not be involved in financial markets. It's just to say that the kind of exposures you need to have in your portfolio are generally a little bit more defensive in nature. Yeah. Hey, Darius, we've got some great questions here. I know we're running low on time. Want to do a speed round? I got three questions here. They're just sure. great questions I want to throw out to you because I think they're really interesting uh, and build on what we've been talking about here today. The first one comes to us from Christopher Fearon from the Real Vision site. And the question is, Darius, how are you positioning for the CPI report on Friday? And more broadly, Darius, what are you going to be looking for there? Uh, and how are you thinking about it? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's pretty well telegraphed that it's going to be hawkish. Um, you know, it could be, you know, we've seen several CPI reports um, this year, particularly the April and obviously the October uh, CPI reports that were even more hawkish than the hawkish expectation. So you certainly could potentially see that again. Certainly, if the if the seasonally adjusted uh, rate of inflation doesn't tone down, it probably will tone down, um, just given the decline in crude oil we saw towards the end of last last uh, last month. But if it doesn't tone down, you could see a seven handle really you know pop up there and really spook markets. And so one thing we called out in our morning note today is that hey, look, we sort of ended last week with it really elevated what we call volatility risk premiums in financial markets, so which is the, pr the, the price of, of, of protection relative to the realized volatility, relative to recent changes in realized volatility, and that we had very high implied volatility premiums, which means investors were really nervous. You know, they kind of ended the week in a very hedged, nervous state, and obviously um, kind of the incremental news we've gotten on Omicron uh, being less severe, that booster shots are working. You know, all that stuff's really perpetuated a lot of that um, you know, monetization of those puts, a lot of short covering in the week to date. Now investors are, are sitting somewhat naked heading into a couple of you know, what could potentially be very hawkish catalysts. And so you know, to the extent that investors have monetized those puts and have covered shorts, maybe you want to think about you know, putting them back on just to survive the next couple of weeks. Um, so that, that's kind of the near-term setup. Yeah, here's one from Chris Ramos. I think he's half teasing us. Uh, how high can inflation go before it breaks the Fed's two percent average threshold? What Chris is asking, uh, Darius, is when is uh, when is seven greater than two? <laughs> uh, most of the time, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, the reality. So th that's a great question, uh, and I'll, I'll take it just a quick step further. The bond yield curve has been flattening pretty aggressively, you know, really for quite a long time. If you look at tens, thirties, fives, thirties, or even um, you know, sort of you know, tens, thirties, fives, thirties in particular. The tens twos curve really started to kind of pancake itself in the last week or so, and to me that that's a very new dynamic. And the reason, in our opinion, that's a new dynamic is because the, it, it's effectively forecasting that the Fed will be effective in tightening us into an economic slowdown. And so that is a new dynamic that investors um, kind of have to watch. And so you kind of have to the key takeaways on these inflation prints. It's like the higher up we go in inflation, the more probable it is all your inflation trades will not work. <laughs> 
because the Fed is going to accelerate its reaction to that in terms of uh, reining out those speculative excesses. Yeah, very interesting point. Uh, final question comes to us from Ralph Humphrey. Uh, He's asking you to be a bit of a soothsayer here, obviously, especially with what's going on with the reopening trade. And the question is, uh, where does Darius see oil prices going from here? Yeah, no, if, if the COVID, uh, if the Pfizer CEO gets the boosters boosted, I get the soothsayer soothsaying. So <laughs> I'm more than happy to, to, to soothsay. That's what I do for a living. Um, you know, so crude oil is bearish from the perspective of our volatility adjusted momentum signal. So the probability is higher that it has a drawdown from here. Then it does have a recovery. It could recover. I'm not saying it's going to do one or the other. Um, but certainly for now, as, as an investor, if you're making decisions based on all the information that you have today, the probability is higher that you have a drawdown than it is that you have a massive recovery. I do believe in the kind of longer-term bull case in energy. I, it's been very well laid out by a lot of investors who are much smarter than me on the subject, and I, I don't have any real reason to, to push back against that. But the reality is, the one thing, and I'll leave everybody with this comment, GDP growth expectations is isolated in the U.S. in particular, and it's been pretty similar for most global economies. GDP growth, real GDP growth next year is expected to come in at 4%. What is happening in the U.S. economy that makes us grow more, almost double what our trend growth rate is? You know, the trend growth in the U.S. is somewhere around two and a quarter percent in terms of our potential GDP. And so for us to grow, let's call it 175 basis points faster than we normally grow, you need to say, what's, well, we need to obviously have some very important dynamics that are catalyzing that. Um, in 2022, we have some important dynamics that are actually working against that. So you need to find some, 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 you need to fill that hole, in my opinion. Fiscal drag is likely to be very, very uh, large. And quite frankly, it'll be a record fiscal drag, nothing unlike we've ever seen in, 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 terms, of, um, you know, in terms of recorded history. So that's a problem for, for growth next year. We obviously don't have uh, the sort of same impulse with respect to vaccine vaccinations and reopening. That was kind of, it wasn't one time, but we're not going to get, you know, go from 0% vaccinations to 70, 80% vaccinations in 2022, like we did in 2021. And so the kind of the, the, the impulse to have the, the positive shock to service sector activity that we experienced in 2021, albeit very disappointing, certainly not what we thought it was going to be, that positive shock, that impulse will be smaller in 2022. So you have two very big things working against growth next year. At the same time, consensus growth expectations are still very elevated. So to me, I think we could be on a collision course next year for some real volatility. Again, don't have to run out and do anything with that today as long as you're positioned accordingly to what we're, you know, how we're positioned in the 42 macro portfolio. But eventually we're going to start to have to raise cash and, and really anticipate some more volatility. So stay tuned on that. Yeah, that's the perfect biggest big picture to end on right there, Darius. I should probably point out that we're talking about the real rate of growth and trend rate of growth, two and a quarter uh, versus the 4%. This is basically factoring out inflation, so the real rate of growth of the U.S. economy. Indeed. Darius, always a pleasure to have you with us. Always, man. Appreciate you, Ash, and enjoy Vegas. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing, everyone. I'll be back again tomorrow in person from MGM with Maggie Lake. The conversation, of course, continues on the exchange. And I believe there are still tickets streaming to get this event, the takeover from the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas right now. Thanks again for joining us.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.